This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. You certainly are. Uh, Nick Redfern is standing by to talk about Slender Man. Uh, and is it possible this internet urban legend, and that's how it started out, is it possible an urban legend could actually come to life? A second hour, owls. I love owls. Uh, but is there a, a connection between owls and UFO encounters? Mike Cleland has uh, collected a wealth of first-hand accounts in which owls manifest in the highly charged moments that surround alien contact. And uh, he'll be here to tell us about that, as I say, in the second hour. So let me introduce the lads on the other side of the glass, playing the Flying Fee V uh, Gibson guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. And uh, Ian, when are you off to uh, Las Vegas to gig with Jerry Lee Lewis again? Uh, April. April. Yeah. All right. Uh, You're going to send lots of pictures, right? Yeah, for sure. Wonderful. How exciting for you. Yeah, the killer. I'll say. Yeah. Now, he must be in his early 80s. Yeah, I think he's 82. 82? Right. I think last but time I checked, yeah. Still full of piss and vinegar, Yeah, I'm sure. I, saw, I saw a video of him playing in December. You can still play. You can still wiggle. <laughs> <laughs> the killer. Good for you. Uh, my fine rockabilly friend. All right. And uh, here in studio with me on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, story producer Albert Vinzel, and also in studio on the Hammond B3, my YouTube live stream producer, Ryan White. All right, so it's the dead of night, and you are fast asleep. Suddenly, you're wide awake, but unable to move. Hunched over you, in the shadows, is an eight- or nine-foot-tall gaunt entity with spider-thin limbs, dressed in an old black suit, a pale face, missing eyes, nose, ears, and mouth, you finally manage to cry out, and then this monstrous thing disappears as suddenly as it appeared. You just had a terrifying encounter with the Slender Man. But who or what is the Slender Man? 
We're going to find out over the next 40 minutes or so. Nick Redfern works full-time as a writer, lecturer, journalist. He writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, alien encounters, and government conspiracies. Nick has written over 33 books. I think this is uh, dated. I think he's closer to 40. We'll find out. Including Men in Black, uh, The Zombie Book, For Nobody's Eyes Only, Final Events, Secret History, Monster Files, uh, The World's Weirdest Places, The Pyramids in the Pentagon, uh, Chubacabra Road Trip. Uh, he also writes for uh, the MUFON UFO Journal and Mysterious Universe. He's appeared on numerous uh, television shows, including Fox News, the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, UFO Hunters. My word, we could just spend the whole show just reviewing his, uh, his CV. Um, and his latest is The Slender Man Mysteries, an Internet Urban Legend Comes to Life. Nick Redfern, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. You are a busy man. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on again. My pleasure. So explain um, how it is that this Slender Man uh, character, which is, from what I understand, it was, it was, was it a creation of an Internet online contest? Yes, it was. It basically began in uh, June 2009 um, with a website called Something Awful. And they opened this contest for people who uh, could come up. You're, you're invited to sort of come up with the the creepiest, weirdest, weirdest um, creature, if you like, or character for the Internet era. And so you had a lot of people who were submitting ideas and artwork and stories uh, to try and come up, you know, with kind of like a, an Internet version of um, Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger, that kind of thing. Right. And one of the people who entered this contest, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, was a guy who essentially um, was the man who created the, the Slender Man. His name was Eric Knudsen. And he created this imagery of this tall, sort of humanoid figure, as you mentioned in the introduction, in a black suit, uh, white shirt, skinny black tie, these long, elongated arms that come down to its knees, and a totally faceless face, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, no ears, just vague shadows where they should be, and these sort of strange flickering um, tentacles coming out of its back. And he placed the Slender Man in the environment of, uh, like, forests and woods, that kind of thing. And so it was a really, really creepy-looking entity. And for reasons that we still don't really know, the Slender Man image that Eric Knudsen created was the one which people really kind of gravitated to and resonated with, uh, to the point where literally within weeks there were forums, chat rooms, websites, blogs, Wikipedia pages, uh, even an online um, show on, on YouTube called Marble Hornets, which was kind of like a found footage fictional series, which had a tr tremendous organ. Um, audience in terms of size and so what you had was this situation where as i said literally weeks after the slender man phenomenon became the number one entity in this contest you had tens of thousands of kids and teenagers all fixating on the slender man issue now that it stayed like that for three or four months and then after that period something very strange started to happen and that was when people claimed to have seen the Slender Man not on you know, TV shows, documentaries, not talking about it in forums or chat rooms, etc., but literally seeing the Slender Man 
um, perhaps in like in their bedroom, like you mentioned at the beginning, or they would feel compelled to get up in the middle of the night and look out the window, and they would see the slender man peering up the, against them. And so, in other words, um, it was as if the uh, or the theory is that if enough people believe in something, sort of the collective mindset, like the hive mind, um, can focus on something, the potential is there to bring it to life, albeit in a very strange way. You call that a tulpa? Yes, a tulpa or a thought form. Those are the alternative uh, um, terms to use. Uh, I mean, is there not, is there a, I'm sure psychologists would Mm. explain this away, and I know there have been incidents, for example, I'm trying to remember there was an experiment where someone reported that a, uh, I think it was a panda bear or something had escaped from a zoo. It hadn't. They just, they put this story out there. And then all of a sudden people started calling in, claiming they had seen a panda in their backyard. It may not have been a panda, but that's the mm. idea. And so I'm wondering if if there could be a more prosaic explanation for this rather than this being a tulpa. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I talk about it, this in the book because there's several different aspects, really. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that um, sort of mass hysteria, you know, is a real phenomenon. I mean, one person claims to have seen this or that, and before you know it, everybody's seeing it. That does happen. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of the Slenderman um, cases did fall into that particular category. You know, somebody may have, who's really followed the Slenderman story and then just happened to see a tall guy who just happens to be wearing a black suit, you know, and you take two and two and you make 22 instead of four, you know. Right, right. I'm sure that does happen. And this gentleman... But what I find particularly intriguing mm-hmm. are the deep parallels where people have these experiences in the bedroom, in the woods, outside of the window, and, you know, for the witness, it's all too real. You know, it doesn't seem like a dream. It doesn't seem like... Um, you know, just uh, fantasizing or anything like that, or mistaken identity. They genuinely feel they've seen the Slender Man. Now, this angle of thought forms goes back a long way, and its traditions are most strongest in Tibet. Um, and the word tulpa is, um, is a Tibetan word, which the best way to, do, to translate it into English is the term thought form. And the idea, the concept in sort of simple, quick terms is that Um, essentially the power of the human mind um, has the ability to essentially project something that is inward, in other words, something that's relative to the human imagination, and then externalize it outside of the mind. Now, if you have, and the theory goes from there, if you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people focusing on this, and bear in mind that if you go to Google and do a search just on that one word, Slenderman. There are more than seven million results. Yes, that shows you, you know, how how much this has a following. Um, and so, basically, the theory is: if you have so many people focusing on the image of the Slenderman, it suddenly becomes externalized, where it's not so much like a physical entity; it's more sort of a phantom type entity, if you like, um, and but which has all the attributes of the fictional creation purely and simply because so many people have that imagery in their mind, they're dreaming about it, thinking about it, drawing pictures of it. 
you know, printing artwork off and plastering it all around their bedroom. Yes. And and then suddenly you have this crossover where you have the thought form and the stronger it gets and the stronger the belief in it, it becomes more and more self-aware to ultimately when it becomes, um, if you like, a, an intelligent version of something that actually was the creation of the world of fiction. Now, what's curious to me, um, almost sinister, I mean, the, the Slender Man the, is certainly sinister, but just sort of stepping behind the curtain, and, and this gentleman that created uh, it for this online contest in 2009, was it Eric Knudsen, did you say his name was? Yes, Eric Knudsen, yeah. What do we know about this fellow? I tell you why I ask. Uh, you know how difficult it is to get something to, to to go viral. I mean, if we knew, we'd all be millionaires in this YouTube world. Uh, and my suspicion is, whenever something does go viral, and I granted, I'm I'm a bit paranoid and conspiratorial, but I always say there's got to be a machine behind it. Let's say, for for example, the Beatles, just four lads. They were grinding it out in in, in the in the bars in the Cavern Club and over in Hamburg. Let's be honest. I mean, this may not sit well with a lot of Beatles fans. There was nothing real special about them until the machine got behind them. Do you know what I'm saying, Nick? Mm. What do you think? I mean, is there, is, is there something else? Well, I've else not seen here? any evidence. I mean, as far as I know, Eric Knudsen was just one, like, numerous people, literally numerous people, who uploaded their artwork of, you know, of whatever it was they wanted to upload, you know, their particular mm -hmm. monster or creature of choice. Um, he just he was one of the people who did that. Now, I think one of the important things to note is that it, you know, it, it, it was basically the reason it took off was due to kids and teenagers thinking, "Wow, this looks really cool." You know, um, forget Freddy Krueger and everything. You know, and Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers. You know, thinking about that's what my mom and dad watched or whatever. Right. These the kids are thinking. We've now got an equivalent. All right, listen, um, Nick, I got to jump in here. We'll take a quick so time out. I think I think I don't personally think there's anything behind it other than just the fact that it was a contest. Because um, you know, it, it's, although it has a large following, I mean, compared to the size of the planet and the world's population, true. You know, it's like a grain of sand. Okay, we got to uh, take a quick time out. We'll come back, continue to delve into this urban legend that may have become manifest. Nick Redfern on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Nick Redfern is here. His latest is The Slender Man Mysteries, an internet urban legend come to life. And he started out as a, um, or it, uh, started out as a, um, a fictional uh, character uh, submitted uh, in 2009 as part of an online contest, and it went viral. And now the question is, has this internet urban legend become a tulpa, which is, uh, well, the idea behind it is a thought form um, when sort of um, magnified, I think Nick used the term uh, the hive mind, 
you know, literally millions of people focusing on this Slender Man character, it becomes manifest. Now, uh, one of these games, uh, these uh, it's called Slender. Uh, what's what's the basis behind? Do you, what can you tell me about this game, Slender? Well, it's basically um, you know the premise that you get in the real world is you know the Slender Man is this predatory, dangerous character, and you have to do your utmost to uh, to fight it off, you know, to destroy it, to get away from it. Um, you know, it's it's not too dissimilar to you know a lot of um, um, computer games where you know you're taking on a hostile entity and you you know you've got to do what you have to do to sort of save your life. So it is it's basically you know the the kind of thing that would sort of attract you know kids, teenagers because of the the kind of you know the excitement sort of roller coaster ride aspect of it. But um, but that you know that another example of it how it's sort of become ingrained in um you know uh, teenage society so to speak and it is primarily young kids and teenagers that are sort of into this and um there are adults but certainly you know it's not as many right um by, well, geek, by it, any means at all if this is a um, tulpa so, if this is a tulpa the the fact that now people are playing this game slender it, it, mm. is is that simply adding to its power well, I think anything really that's related to the Slender Man, if it is externalized and becomes a thought form, then I think anything relative to the Slender Man phenomenon in fiction or other or any kind of uh, medium, I think has the ability to add more strength to it. And, um, and I think that it isn't um, a coincidence uh, the fact that we are seeing more and more reports. I mean, I'll give you an example. I gave a, spoke at a conference yesterday um, about 50 miles from Dallas, Texas, where I live. And um, I got three stories from people who said they'd seen the Slender Man. One was in the sort of the classic case of lying in bed and seeing it looming over them. One claimed to have seen like a, a line of three of them. Um, literally sort of walking through a field late one night but this was back in the 1980s before the slender man was officially created and sort of this gets us involved in things like ancient archetypes because throughout a lot of ancient cultures you can find similar things to the slender man so it's almost like yes eric nudson created it but was he inspired perhaps subconsciously by some sort of ancient archetype if you like so uh there's a lot of weird stuff, and it's still, it's actually growing. You know, it, it, it's not going away like a lot of internet fads often do. You right. know, um, this one's still on the rise, so to speak. Well, the, the most, um, I don't want to use the word celebrated case, but the most, um, the case that's gained the most notoriety with relation t- uh, to the Slender Man is the, the uh, two Wisconsin girls mm. uh, who tried to murder one of their friends. Yeah. Uh, and I believe one of them was just sentenced to forty. Was it twenty-five or forty years in a in a mental hospital? Uh, yeah, I- yeah. This is this is an important case. The main reason being, although as I said, the Slenderman phenomenon has a has a huge following. I mean, the fact is that the vast majority of people haven't heard of it, uh, even though you know hundreds of thousands have. Um, but what the what the attack by the two girls did was to reveal the Slender Man, if you like, to the mainstream world. You know, people picked up newspapers or you know checked uh, 
the, you know, the news on their laptop or, you know, they're on their iPhone and saw, you know, girls attack, girl, um, in Slenderman attack, that kind of thing. People are saying, what on earth is a Slenderman? So, you know, it did open it up to more and more people. But this is certainly, without doubt, the most disturbing aspect of the whole phenomenon. And what happened, um, essentially, is that on, the, uh, on May the 31st, 2014, you had two girls, Anissa Weir and Morgan Geezer, and they attacked a friend of theirs, Peyton Lutner, uh, all 12 years old, all went to the same school, were friends together. And the night before the attack, um, one of the girls had a birthday, you know, they had like a sleepover, slumber party, and everything was fine. Next day, they all had breakfast together, and then the two girls who initiated the attack um, suggested they all go down to the local park and why don't we go into the wooded area of the park, which is what they did. And the two girls then uh, attacked Peyton Lutner, or the one girl, I should say, attacked Peyton Lutner while the other one looked on. And she was stabbed 19 times. And it's, you know, it's almost a miracle that she didn't die because several of the stab wounds came sort of perilously close to major arteries and organs which you know could have proved fatal um they then the two girls then fled the area because they assumed she was going to die but luckily a passing uh, cyclist saw her and you know the emergency services uh, were soon ambulance you know soon on the scene but the two girls quite literally sort of hit the road their plan as they believed was to go to a nearby forest where they believed the Slender Man had this sort of creepy mansion and they were going to live with him. Now, if you watch some of the footage, which are now available of the police interviews um, with the two girls, it's clear, you know, they weren't working on a ploy to, you know, commit murder and and say, you know, have a verdict of, well, you know, that they won't spend much time, you know, behind bars or whatever because it's mental illness. They really, you could tell you like that it wasn't a ploy at all uh, they really did fully believe in the existence of the slender man and they felt that by sacrificing essentially their friend or former friend obviously it could be in their own words the slender man's proxy and um and as you said just a couple of months ago we got the verdict and both although they won't be in prison um you know it was viewed as sort of um you know, like a mental delusion, so to speak. And, but they will be, you know, sort of out of society uh, for 30, 40 years. You know, they'll be well into middle age before they're released back into society. Um, and now, of course, you know, the, the conventional angle to all this is that the girls just got so obsessed with all this and, you know, they blurred the lines between faction, excuse me, between fiction and fact so terribly and in just about the worst way possible and you know as i said that is a conventional explanation but what's really weird is that there have been pre-existing reports um of slender man type things seen in the woods only a couple of miles from where the attack occurred in 2014 i'll give you an example one of the people i interviewed for the book was a guy named mike huberty and Mike is someone who um, he saw a slender man type thing, like a tall, dark, shadowy thing, skinny, about seven feet high, in the woods, just about two to three miles from where the girls initiated the attack. Now, the girls' attack was in 2014. Mike's sighting was 1994. 
And there are several other cases, one which goes back to 1921, which has very similar overtones attached to it as well. Mm. So, you know, when you look at it deeper, you find a lot of weirdness surrounding the killings that, you know, obviously did not become part of the court case, which, which it wouldn't anyway, because, I mean, right. it's not the court's place to sort of debate on the nature of the world of the supernatural or not, and so no. it goes for the police. But the fact is, those stories pre-existed the attacks. And the, the case from the 1920s and then the one from 1994, obviously more contemporary, mm. how closely did the description of this entity fit with Eric Knudsen's creation, The Slender Man? Oh, well, the one in 1921 um, was described as a tall, thin man in a black suit, which I guess... You know, you don't get much closer than that. Um, and how did you uncover the that account? one in 1994 with Mike, um, he described it as like about seven feet tall, very thin, uh, long arms, and lurking in the woods. And that pretty much, you know, mm. um, details the Slender Man. I mean, all the imagery that was created initially, like Eric Knudsen and people who copied him, all showed him in not just in the black outfit and tall, but in the woods. That's one of the one of the primary aspects of it is that the slender man sort of lurks and lives in the woods. Right. Um, how did you uncover so, you know, the? How did you uncover the, again the the um, eyewitness sighting in the nineteen twenties? Was that in a paper? Yes, it actually was. What I did, I just did research in the area because I've often found that if you have one weird story in one particular area very often you'll find other stories you know sometimes you have places that become like supernatural hotspots so i just did a bunch of research on the town or the city it's called the city of waukesha in wisconsin it's actually it's not a big city it's a small city it's um it's a suburb of milwaukee and so i did a bunch of research on uh, waukesha and I'm signed up to, you know, a couple of these websites where you can gain access to old newspapers and that kind of thing. And um, and I found the story. And um, the boy who was killed, he was never identified. Um, and he, he was buried, you know, as an unknown grave. Um, but there was a big police investigation. And, um, uh, and it was never resolved. But, um, you know, it was one of those tragic cases. But the two that I mentioned, Mike's and the 1921... That's the sort of, that and the 2014 attack. That's just three examples of what actually amount to like seven or eight. So there's um, you know a lot of lot of weirdness in that area. Right. Now, aside from this uh, this case in Milwaukee in 2014, are there other recent contemporary uh, accounts of? people attacking other people in order to gain favor with the Slender Man? I mean, all we hear about is this uh, Wisconsin yeah, case. Yeah, well, there's actually several cases. I mean, just, uh, I mean, literally just a couple of weeks um, after the, the Slender Man attacks <clears throat> in, um, in Waukesha, there were various other attacks as well, which uh, were eerily in, and sort of inextricably sort of connected to the whole um, Slender Man phenomenon. One of them, um, this was just one week after the attacks in Waukesha. Uh, this occurred in Hamilton County, Ohio, and uh, a 13-year-old girl um, attacked her mother. And, um, and she was, at the time, she was wearing a hoodie and like a, a deathly pale mask, the girl. And um, essentially, she actually said 
to her mother, I've been waiting for you, and then lunged out oh, with an attack. And luckily, you know, her mother survived. But it turns out when the police looked into it that she was obsessed uh, with the Slender Man. Um, that's just one example. Uh, certainly, without doubt, the most graphic and, and tragic one um, occurred in June 2014, on June the 8th. And this involved a, a married couple, Jared and Amanda Miller, and they went on a shooting spree in Las Vegas, killed two police officers, one man in a Walmart, and they were obsessed with the Slender Man as well, to the point where they would go to costume parties, um, he'd be dressed as the Slender Man, and he, had, he was also obsessed with the Joker character from Batman, mm -hmm. and they, I mean, they were really into the whole Slender Man thing, you know, games, cosplay, um, online shows, that kind of artwork, that kind of thing. And what, what you find, in a very strange way, is what I call on the, on the back cover of the book, The Slender Man Sickness, where you find when people get obsessed with it, it always becomes a bad obsession. You know, whether there's a, there's a shooting spree, there's a stabbing, there's an attack on a family member. There's never a positive angle to this at all. Um, and for reasons we don't know, this obsession happens a lot, and it gets violent and sometimes deadly and occasionally fatal as well. Well, I mean, there are so many uh, characters and villains in comic books and on in the movies and so forth, and we don't see we don't see people latching on to certain characters and then going out on and and, and um, you know trying to um, sacrifice in that character's name. What is it about this one in particular? Uh, and well, that's actually a really good point you bring up because, you know, if it was, you know, famous comic book characters or, you know, novel characters that people were doing it in the name of this superhero or that supervillain or whatever, then you could say, well, it's just happening all over the place. Uh, but it actually isn't. What's happening is that primarily it's all surrounding this particular character, the Slender Man. And there's also another one in Native American lore that's known as Walking Sam, who is like a, a dark-suited figure with a, with a large hat. And just uh, not long after the, uh, the Slender Man attacks in Walkershire, there was um, a spate of suicides and uh, near suicides on a, one particular Native American... Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, a reservation? Reservation, that's the word. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, you have these attacks, and uh, it's almost as if there's something about the Slender Man phenomenon which somehow affects people. It affects their character. It affects their minds. And common sense just goes out of the window, you know, and it's, um, it's almost like they're driven, you know, that their mind changes and they're driven to do... Right. As I said, the worst thing possible. Just right. About. Yeah, this is, there's something very sinister, obviously, going on, but more than just some prosaic explanation of, you know, mentally unstable people becoming obsessed with something. There's something else afoot, I suspect, and I know you do too, Nick. Back with more of my conversation with Nick Redfern as we continue to delve into Slender Man, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Nick Redfern stays with us. The book is The Slender Man Mysteries, An Internet Urban Legend Comes to Life. Uh, you had mentioned uh, some other sort of examples of, of uh, this. Um, and I'm thinking of Spring Hill. Was it Spring Hill Jack? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, the Hat Man mm-hmm. uh, and, and Shadow People. Uh, is there, I mean, is there a common denominator here, do you think, or are, all the, are these like sort of separate silos? No, I actually don't think they are um, separate, Richard. I think what we're looking at is, so, is kind of like an archetypal imagery, like sort of a, you know, a sinister figure in a black suit. It kind of resonates with us. You know, if you, if you go back to like the fifth, late 40s and 50s, you know, when things like film noir was really popular, I mean, that's just exactly the same kind of thing, you know, sort of a private detective in his black suit and his fedora hat sort of, you know, walking through a foggy street, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you have you have the Slender Man, as you said, the Shadow People. You have a, a subgroup within the Shadow People called the Hat Man. Um, you know, the, the Men in Black, which, you know, nothing like the movie versions, the Men in Black, the real ones, are sort of described as pale and... You know, odd-looking and menacing. Uh, even I think things like the black-eyed children could be connected. You know, they they're pale. They you know skinny. They wear black hoodies. Um, I think all of these things, these sort of strange, sinister characters in black outfits and sort of menacing appearances. I think all of it is kind of embedded in our psyche. Um, you know, almost perhaps like an inherited memory and perhaps goes back thousands of years. And like I said, you can find, you know, stories similar to The Slender Man. I mean, one incorporated into a very famous um, folktale, uh, that of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, um, the story of this tall, skinny figure who had this sort of supernatural flute that could hypnotize children. And in the story, uh, the kids are taken away into the woods um, and then into like a portal uh, entrance to a, a mountain and the kids are never seen again. But in the story, you know, he's described as this um, tall, skinny, odd-looking figure and he can entrance children and um, tragedy and death occurs. Uh, eyewitnesses, uh, I mean, obviously they're not all going on some sort of a stabbing rampage, thank God. Uh, mm-hmm. But what else do, do we know about Slenderman? Do, supposedly, does he um, does he talk? Does he? Uh, what, what else do we know about him? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for the most part, um, people don't talk about actually hearing the Slenderman say anything at all. But one of the stories I've got in the book, which is a really sort of weird and creepy story, involves a, a woman named or a young girl named Lacey. And um, when I interviewed her, she was a trainee uh, flight attendant. She's now uh, a full flight attendant. And 
in her um, late teens, she was someone who, like a lot of people, got obsessed with the Slender Man mystery. And she did a lot of her research online, and that included sort of reading all the fictional stories that people were posting online, you know, spending hours, um, you know, sort of um, in chat rooms and forums and that kind of thing, and watching the Marble Hornets found uh, footage show. And really, by her own admission, she did get obsessed with it. Now, bear in mind that a lot of her work and research was done on the Internet. Um, She told me how on three occasions, uh, the first occasion, um, as she put her laptop into sleep mode, it suddenly fired up again. And she said very briefly for like half a second, but it was still enough for her eye to register, there was like an image of the Slender Man on the screen. And then on the second occasion, which I think was a couple of weeks after, um, she saw an image like of the face, the faceless face. And then on the third occasion, uh, she heard this sort of gravelly voice say, we're friends now. And that totally freaked her out to the point where she literally dumped all of her material. Um, she just threw it in the garbage, all the you know the pictures she'd uh, printed off and put in frames and... Uh, in her uh, in her living room or wherever, and um, and she actually had a copy of a previous book written by a friend of mine, uh, Robin Swope, and the book's called um, Slender Man: From Fiction to Fact. And she was so frightened, uh, Lacey was so frightened, she actually burned her copy of Robin's book. That's how traumatized she was by this um, case. And and this is probably one of it's actually one of the few, the very few I've got where the Slender Man is reputedly heard to speak but in her case it was sort of through the laptop and you know i said well is it you know could it have been a friend you know or or someone who had had hacked into you you know just to try and terrify you sending you messages or whatever and taking over your laptop and she she didn't believe that was the case at all and there were a few other weird sort of more paranormal things that happened to her but oddly and intriguingly she didn't want to expand on that so i never found out actually what they were but she was someone, again, who was massively traumatized by it. And there are a few other occasions where people have heard the Slender Man um, say something to them. And it often usually is something like, we're friends now, or, you know, um, we're together, that kind of thing. It's all based around the Slender Man saying, you're with me now, that kind of thing. Well, in the case of the, these uh, two uh, girls... In Wisconsin, they thought they were actually going to perform this sacrifice, win his favor, and go off and live hev- hev- uh, happily ever after. Um, you know, they must have had some sort of dialogue with this specter, or whether it's in their own imagination, which, you know, I think most rational minds would say, well, that's got to be what was going on, except there were two of them. It wasn't just, you know, one. It's not like Son of Sam hearing a voice in his head. There were two of them. Uh, Anyway, we'll uh, continue to delve into this uh, most sinister uh, entity, the Slender Man. Nick Redfern stays with us for a few moments yet. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? 
You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back to the Slender Man Mysteries. I think one thing that uh, is important, um, uh, you know, and this is what we're talking is is, is speculation um, and the idea of tulpas uh, and whether or not it is possible for a an internet creation to become manifest because of this um, focusing on it and you know millions of people focusing on it and uh, this is the idea behind a tulpa. Now in 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 Tibetan uh, lore, I mean these Buddhist monks. Uh, it would only take a handful of them, right, to manifest some entity, right? Yeah, there's sort of two um, kinds of schools of thought, Richard. One is that, you know, if you're very adept at this and you know how to do it and you have the ability to get your mind into almost like an altered state and focus on it, that possibly one person or, as you said, a handful can achieve this very quickly. If you're not aware of it or how to do it, then... But you're you're fully believing in something, um, and so are hundreds of thousands of other people. Then you don't necessarily have to be someone who's skilled at it. It's just the sheer mind power, the collective power that's sort of, you know, almost like a in wavelengths, you know, spreading across the planet, so to speak. If you're adept enough to. Um, you know, focus to a degree at least um, in that you believe in the phenomenon. In many respects, that's the most important thing of all is not whether you can really, you're really adept at doing it or you're new to it or you're completely oblivious of it. But if you really do actually think, wow, this creature might really be real, that kind of tips the scales as far as the theory is concerned in terms of, you know, when you start to believe in it, then everything kind of speeds up. Then, right. I get uh, the um, the thread. The the point I was going to make, and then I completely dropped it, was that um, <laughs> I, I, I want to be careful that we don't excuse the behavior of these mm. of these people that are committing these acts. Um, and simply say, well, they were being possessed, yeah. or this was a supernatural force. I mean, because I, you know, I think to be fair, we have to. Um, obviously hold out the possibility that these women were simply, or these young girls, uh, were simply, they may have been mentally disturbed or they may have simply been acting in a, you know, just a, listen, we're living in a death culture. And, and people do things without any plausible explanation. They just do it maybe because they're bored. I mean, that's, to, that's where we've arrived at in society at this yeah. point, right? I mean, the banality of evil, as they say. Um, however, I think it's also, uh, you know, worth discussing this idea of, of uh, uh, a tulpa, the, the idea of a thought form becoming, becoming manifest. Um, where is Eric Knudsen now in all of this? I mean, does he, f- I mean, he must just feel terrible. Well, um, I mean, when the attack occurred in Walkershire, or after it, I should say, Eric Knudsen did actually, you know, say he was extremely sorry to hear about what had happened, you know, I mean, it was it was terrible news. Um, but you're right, I don't think, you know, we should be laying blame on anyone other than the people who perpetrated these attacks, you know. Um, 
you know, I, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Eric Knudsen, the fact that he felt, you know, he, he wanted to make a statement, it was obviously sort of playing on his mind. But, um, you know, I think um, it's like any creation, you know, you, you cannot you cannot blame um, somebody who creates an image for the internet. You can't blame them at all for the actions of somebody who may be mentally ill. You know, I mean, um, that's not their fault. That's the fault of the person who has an illness, a sickness, or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, it's a very delicate situation where I do honestly believe that there, you know, there is like a thought form angle to it. But sometimes mental illness is just mental illness and nothing else. And I think it's important to recognize that and not say, oh, well, these people, you know, they, they're not responsible because something supernatural has got into their mind. And so, you know, they can, they can just walk, you know. Right. No, that, that's where the, again, it becomes sort of a very controversial issue. And so, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to think about if this phenomenon, you know, continues to grow. Well, I think the point is, yeah, whether it's uh, supernatural or whether it more likely there is a more prosaic explanation, the fact is the Slender Man phenomena is here. How, do, you know, and, and now what do we do about it? Uh, for example, this, mm. this game Slender. I mean, if, if parents knew that their their children were playing this game uh you know i think they they'd be they'd be understandably upset uh so well, yeah and i mean to add to that uh, just a couple of months from now there's a major hollywood movie coming out on the slender man as well um you know so it's definitely still growing but um but no you're right things like that you know and, and particularly games things like that i mean it all kind of amplifies it now when you said what you know can be done about it, well, the again the theory in Buddhist teachings in Tibet is that the best way to try and and destroy, if you like, the thun, uh, the uh, thought form, is to essentially not think about it or to try and focus your mind on deconstructing it or disintegrating it. Um, but of course, it's not that easy to do. And on top of that, it's not easy to stop thinking about something. You know, one of the theories is that the, the thought form derives its strength, if you like, from the, the sheer level of belief in it. So if the belief goes away and the people forget about it, it starts to fragment. But, you know, with such what is now a, a sinister, um, sort of uh, iconic, in the wrong way, but iconic kind of entity, um, but like I said, sinister and notorious, and that which has such much, so much visual power to its appearance, it really is difficult, I think, for you know these hundreds of thousands of people, or whatever the figure is now, to just switch the light off and and forget about it. Like I said, it's not it's not at all easy to do, and I think that's and when you have something else coming out and something else coming out, then you know it's. Um, it's, when it's consistently in the um, in the public eye, then it's going to continue to exist. Right. Yeah. It's like saying, "Stop thinking about pink elephants." You can't do exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> but it also says again, uh, and I, I mentioned this earlier, a great deal about our about our culture today, and that is that um, that young people would be, in some cases, worshiping 
this 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 character, uh, and and getting all hyped up about the idea of you know sacrificing to this character, uh, you know whether it's a topa or whether it is just simply uh, you know an, an online internet uh, character, totally fiction. Uh, it says so much about the culture. To me, that's perhaps the most disturbing part of all, is that 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 people, young people, would be so bored and so uh, uh, obsessed with 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 death that they would embrace a character like this. Well, I mean, kind of connected to this is you you see in some of these cases of the attacks where you know the the attacker resonates with the Slenderman. It almost becomes like Stockholm Syndrome, where, you know, you have somebody who is kidnapped and they start to um, sort of resonate with the, with, the, with the kidnappers, you know, and um, things like that happen quite often, um, you know, when, when you have someone who, you know, has been taken against their will and but they're with them for, say, a month, you know, and um, and then they start to empathize with them and um and and it, and it is a very strange situation and i think there's a degree of that in relation to the slender man that you know perhaps you've got kids in some cases i mean all but in some perhaps where you know not like when we were kids you know when you'd be riding your bike around town till sunset you know um back today you have kids who are sort of more isolated just sitting in the bedroom with you know either they're Laptop, uh, just give them their laptop, their iPad, their iPhone, or whatever, and you know, just seeing the latest news on the Slender Man, and just sitting alone in the bedroom after dinner or whatever, um, and they latch onto it. You know, it becomes it becomes their thing, and in a strange way, it may also be kind of like um, their very own equivalent of something, you know, vaguely like Stockholm syndrome. Hmm. Uh, yeah, very disturbing. So, uh, you know, let's say this Hollywood movie never came out. Mm. Um, do you think that eventually the um, the energy, whatever is feeding the, into this whole phenomenon, would just simply go away? Or do you think this thing has, unfortunately, mm. has legs? Well, uh, it, well, all I can say for sure right now, it has legs. You know, I mean, since the book came out, which was just like a month ago, I mean, I've got dozens and dozens of stories um, of people who claim to have seen it. And I've got four or five stories of people who said, uh, you know, parents who said, you know, they didn't just didn't like the fact that this, their kids were getting into this and put a stop to it. So I think, you know, it's all dependent on on circumstances more than anything else. I mean, um, it could come to an end. You know, I mean, fads and, and, you know, things like that do end. You know, they start and they end. Um, and you see things from de- pre- previous eras that really caught everybody's attention. And today nobody cares about them. I mean, look at things like Rubik Cubes. Everybody had to have one, you know. Right. I mean, this is nothing to do with thought forms. But, you know, that's how our mind works. Something new comes out and you've got to have it. Um, and so uh, there is a chance it could go away. But as long as it's got that huge following, then I don't see that happening. I mean, be, you know, big, purely and simply because it does have that that big following. Well, I have to say, um, uh, in, in a way, you know, shame on Hollywood, you know, for sort of just feeding into this thing. 
I mean, do, let me ask yeah. you, and in, in, in all frankness, I mean, did you have any reservations about even writing about this? Sometimes, you know. Oh yeah, I did, and yeah. I mean, this was actually something that we went through with the uh, publisher quite a lot, as to, you know, you don't. I mean, I don't sensationalize things, particularly with the story of the girls. I just tell the story in the same way that it would be written in, say, you know, half a dozen newspapers in in um, in Wisconsin where the attack happened, and in the same way that you know um, MSNBC and and you know CNN covered the story. I did it from sort of a journalistic approach um, because it is a delicate issue. I mean, there's Absolutely. no doubt about that. And when you're talking about people's lives and deaths and um, almost being killed, I mean, you have to tread carefully and do it in a responsible way. Um, otherwise, you know, it, it becomes just like some, you know, tabloid sensationalism, which Absolutely. is not, definitely Absolutely. not the way to go. Um, so, you know, I, I just try to follow the story, tell the story, and then demonstrate these legitimately weird aspects you know, like these pre-attacks and pre-sightings in Warcashire and, and demonstrate to people why, you know, numerous people do believe the thought form angle and present similar cases to, uh, you know, suggest that this, this is a legitimate, you know, paranormal phenomenon. All right, um, Nick, unfortunately, we um, we got to run, but I want to uh, let people know the Slenderman Mysteries, an Internet urban legend comes to life. Uh, available and uh, sort of use this, I guess, as a warning and keep your kids away from this nonsense. Not the book. I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> you know, Slender the Game and and, uh, and so forth. Thank you again, yeah, Nick. Be careful. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks. UFOs and owls when the conspiracy show continues right after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Hi there to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Uh, those of you catching the, uh, the show on the podcast, of course, which is everywhere. Hi to those of you checking us out on one of our affiliate stations. Uh, those of you listening to The Conspiracy Show via the Conspiracy Show and Zoomer Radio apps, which are both free downloads. Uh, those of you streaming The Conspiracy Show live on YouTube. Uh, and uh, those of you in the, uh, the YouTube live uh, chat room. Uh, oh, incidentally, if you're uh, watching the YouTube channel, please hit that sub button. Where are we, uh, guys? Around 7,100, yeah. I think, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. Okay. Yeah, I just pulled my headset out here. Let me just snap that back in. There we go. Sorry about that, folks. Um, anyway, however and wherever you are listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. The owl. I love owls. I've always loved owls. Uh, I think, um, you know, I mean, it's a bird of prey, but um, of, of all the birds of prey, it's absolutely my, my favorite, and it's just, uh, there's something very um, mystical about it, and of course, it's held a place of reverence and mystique throughout history, and as strange as this might seem, 
owls are also showing up in connection with the UFO experience. Uh, Mike Cleland has collected a wealth of first-hand accounts in which owls manifest in the highly charged moments that surround alien contact or UFO sightings. There is a strangeness to these accounts that defies simple explanation, and this book uh, explores um, implications, really, that go far beyond what more conservative researchers would dare consider. But the, uh, the owl connection encompasses more than the UFO experience. It also includes profound synchronicities, ancient archetypes, dreams, shamanistic experiences, personal transformation, and death, of course. From the mythic legends of our ancient past to the first-hand accounts of the UFO abductee, owls are playing some vital role. This is also a deeply personal story we're going to hear. It's an odyssey of self-discovery as Mike grapples with his own owl and UFO encounters. And what plays out, however, is a story of transformation with the owl at the heart of this journey. Mike Cleland is an avid outdoorsman, illustrator, UFO researcher. He's written extensively on the subject of alien abductions, synchronicities and owls. It was his first-hand experience with these elusive events that have been the foundation for this research. His website, Hidden Experience, explores these events and their connections to the alien contact phenomenon. And uh, the, uh, he's also the um, author of The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO Abductee, and Stories from the Messengers, Owls, UFOs, and a Deeper Reality. Uh, he currently resides in the Adirondacks, and um, we're delighted to have Mike Cleland on The Conspiracy Show. Mike, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. So, uh, how did your life, I mean, you, you had these experiences and you, um, you know, you were kind of researching it, but not spending a lot of time on it. But then all of a sudden it just simply like took over your life completely. I mean, it well, turned that, your once I started writing the book, it, it took over my life completely. Yeah. Um, I had, uh, I had a handful of events in my life, a handful of experiences, um, that, that uh, happened. Most of them happened when I was much younger, and I was um, reading a lot about UFOs. I took it seriously. I had seen some things in my youth that you know that made me say, "Well, you know, if I've seen this, then I have to take these stories seriously." So, reading UFO books became a sort of um, you know that was what I was doing in my forties. So, turn the back. I'm 55 now. So, turn the clock back about 11 years. I was 44, and I was. Uh, living out west near Grand Teton National Park, and I went camping with a friend. It was actually a person I really didn't know that well, and um, was just for one night. And this was at a point in my life when these events, these memories, I had missing time events, I had UFO sightings, I had, um, and in my 30s, I actually had a memory of sitting up in bed and looking out my window and seeing five any gray aliens, you know, walking towards the house, and they were backlit by this bright, bright light. Um, I just, in my mind, I just felt like there was a voice that said, now is time to put your head on the pillow and shut down. And that's exactly what I did. I, I, I didn't trust that memory, and I didn't even bother the next day to even look in the yard to see if there was any kind of footprints or anything. So, um, so that was the foundation. So that was sort of that was sort of boiling there. So, you know, you have the tea kettle on, and then right. just before it starts to whistle, you can kind of sense, you know, it's getting ready to whistle. And that's, that was kind of my life at that point. I recognized 
that there was going to be a day I was going to have to look into this stuff, but I did not want to go there. I was ignoring it. I was denying it. I was believing other people's stories. I did not believe my own story. Um, but that all changed in 2006, I guess. And that all changed in 2006. I was camping, and there was uh, I was having a lovely conversation as the sun was setting, and uh, an owl flew over our head, and then another owl, and then another owl, and there were three owls, and they they flew above us, and they landed on branches near us, and it continued until the sun went totally down, and we set our sleeping bags. It was a lovely, perfect night in the mountains. We just set our sleeping bags out under the stars and just slept that way, and so looking straight up at the stars, the, the stars would be blotted out for just a half a second as these owls would pass right above our faces close, and they were very quiet. Owls fly very silently. Yes. And in that moment... And, I, and it, so then I, that what happened was it happened, to have it happen once was pretty cool. Mm. We went camping, the same friend, her name is Kristen, we went camping four days later, and the exact same thing happens, except this time the owls were even closer. They were on, landing on the branches right next to us. They were landing on the ground right next to us. I'm convinced they were the same owls. It was a completely different part of the mountains, but I'm convinced it was the same three owls. At the time, I didn't talk about it then, I'm talking about it now, I heard this voice in my head that said, this has something to do with the UFOs. And that is how I started. I got all crazy about owls and started researching owls, and that bled over to the UFO research. And I was researching myself, basically. I wanted answers for my, for my selfish reasons. And every person I talked to, whether that was a researcher or a... Um, an experiencer, someone's had the direct contact experience, I would ask the question, have you had any odd experiences with owls? And it's certainly not 100% of the people, but it's it's very real pattern. Now, had they and had I, they ever been asked that before? Um, mostly not, you know. Um, uh, you know what happens, you talk to a researcher, and they'll say, you, I've, you know, I spoke with Bud Hopkins at length about this, and I spoke with other folks, that, you know, uh, and... They'll say, you know, of course, oh yes, we get we get we get owl reports, and then they'll tell of the the screen memory of the four foot tall owl that appears on a lonely road at night. Now, there's no such thing as a four foot tall owl; they simply aren't that big. Right. And under hypnosis, the the hypnotherapist would say, you know, describe this owl, and the the person. This is a kind of apocryphal how I'm describing this because this is any number of cases play out like this. Um, the person would say, well, it's. The owl has a bald head, it's got a little tight-fitting uniform on, it's skinny, it's got big black eyes, and I don't think that's an owl. And then they, they would um, they would be describing most probably, most commonly, the gray alien that we right. all recognize. But you're not talking about a screen memory, because, I mean, a screen memory could be anything. Uh, it could be, uh, I think you pointed out, it could be a deer, it could be um, a small child. Uh, yeah, a Dead relatives, sure. Sure. So this, I, but, yes. But so, you, yeah. So I became. I address in the book. I address the screen memories, and I, I kind of do it early, and I kind of want to move on. So I address it. There's some marvelous, remarkable stories involving screen memories, but that's not what fascinated me. What fascinated me was that real owls seem to be showing up. Now these these owls that I saw in the mountains, those were real owls. I mean, I was right up close to them. They were owl size; they were about twelve inches tall. They were doing little owl things, and and uh, so I feel strongly that those were real owls. 
Can I ask and you one more thing about that? Could I ask you one oh, more thing sure. about that that camping experience? And then it happened again, as you say, about four days later in Idaho. Uh, now I, I do love owls, but this I don't know about them. Do owl? Aren't they more solitary? I mean, they don't tend to like. They're not. They don't. They're not. They don't hang out in flocks. I mean, they have three they, or four they owls. They can. Yeah. Oh, they, they can. Okay. Can hang out in flocks. Okay. But it's they are mostly solitary. Yeah, that was my um, understanding. It's my understanding that a family of owls, like that, are that are. Um, uh, have been all raised in the nest together will sometimes be seen together. And so, yes, so it is not, it's uncommon, but it's not unheard of. Okay. So what I'm describing is not impossible, but for me it came at a highly charged moment. And um, now here's the weird thing. So I remember said we were having a lovely conversation. I couldn't remember what we were talking about, this woman, Kristen, and I. And... And it was years later, I got a hold of her, after I had, like, written up about these things, I got a hold of her and said, what were we talking about that night the first owl showed up? And she said, oh, I remember exactly what we were talking about. I was giving my most heartfelt definition of what God meant to me. And I was kind of bowled over, because that took this already powerful story, and it, and it made it sort of transcendent in its power. Um, you know, so there you're mixing another whole element into this, into the soup in a way. Um, so that really, um, you know, that, that kind of uh, drama kind of painted a lot of these experiences. Right. And then after that, those two experiences in 2006, your uh, encounters with owls and the, the accompanying synchronicities really ramped up, I mean, to a, almost a ridiculous level, right? It was awful. Yeah, it was, it, I actually sort of, and I'm not, saying this lightly. I, I, I worried for my sanity. It was irrational how many owls I was seeing at extremely highly charged moments. I would be thinking something um, uh, and, and the owls would show up. I would be having a conversation with someone at a highly charged moment and the owls would show up. And, and I was quite, uh, like, I was dismissing the ones I was seeing off on the side of the road. Like, if it, did, if it didn't mean anything, I was kind of like, okay, those don't count. Um, but there were some powerful events and, and the synchronicities all of the synchronicities I was having between about 2006 and 2011-12, which it, it, it dialed down a little bit. I felt like I got the point, and, I, and, and uh, um, all had something to do with UFOs. I was synchronicities involved with UFO researchers, right. other people. I would get a hold of them, and then they would, I would find out that they you know, were UFO experiencers. It was, it was, it was a, um, a very stressful point in my life. Well, we're heading into a break here in just a moment, but I just want that to sort of sink in with people. Uh, like I said, I love owls, but I could count on one hand in my 54 years the number of encounters I've had with an owl, maybe even less than one hand, maybe three encounters where I've actually, you know, seen an owl in the wild. Uh, now, I've heard owls occasionally, but, I mean, you were having... I mean, constant encounters. I mean, that's just, that's... Three at a time, two at a time, five at a time. Uh, you know, parked out my window. Uh, I actually, at a certain point, I said, you know, like, I am not going to pay attention to owls unless they cross my path. And, and a day later, I, and I actually went and declared that out loud. I walked alone into the woods and declared that out loud. And it was a couple days later, excuse me, a couple days later, I was riding my bike down this main street of this little town I lived in, and an owl, I watched it leap off a tree branch and fly right in front of my path, cross my path exactly 
as I said, demanding my attention exactly at eye level, and then kind of floated up and alighted onto the tree across on the other side of the street. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss owls, the messengers, owls, synchronicity, and the UFO abductee, stories from the messengers, owls, UFOs, and a deeper reality. Mike Cleland is right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking with Mike Cleland about uh, the connection uh, between owls and UFO encounters, owls and synchronicities. So how did these uh, stories start to uh, come to you? Uh, I mean, I know you were blogging about it starting in around 2009. Uh, but how did you, how were you collecting these stories enough to fill, you know, a volume? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, I honestly, right now I'm getting nearly one a day. I'm getting one good owl story a day, and that has been going on since around um, 2010, 2009. And, and uh, it's... Go ahead, yeah. Most of those arrive through email, and then I'll make a follow-up. I'll often talk to people on the phone or do a long back-and-forth, uh, you know, with emails. Um, but uh, most of them have been arriving through emails. And then when I was going to UFO conferences, too, I would ask people and just talk to people, and people would take me aside and say, oh, I have an owl story for you. And I heard the most amazing stories, just remarkable. And so what is it? Typically they, they see a, an owl, then they see a, a craft, they hear an owl, they see a craft. How does it... Is there uh, kind any, of a... any number of variation of that, any variation at all of that. So, so um, that the... But here, this is almost one of the first ones I got. It was a fellow, fellow named Derek. I've met him, and we sat together and, and, and drank coffee, and he explained this. He, um, uh, in his 20s, he was out camping in the desert, and his, him and his friend, and they, were, they looked up, and they saw an owl on a cactus staring down at them. It was like they had a little campfire, and it was actually lit up by the light of the campfire, so it was incredibly eerie. Both of them felt this, you know, heavy sensation to it. It flew off moments later, a triangle-shaped craft flew absolutely silently above them. And, and he really worked to, to try to describe how eerie the flight pattern of that craft was, that it, that it hugged the terrain in this very unnatural way. Um, he later went on to describe a handful of other things that, that certainly played out in my mind, you know, like the kind of things that a UFO abductee would, would share, dreams, memories, uh, events, in bed, um, feeling like he was being floated through the wall. He described it as quite dreamlike. So I, you know, I, I can't, I can't say what truly happened. But what I can, and he also said something. This is another thing that shows up in the book. He said, you know, this this whole thing and starting with the UFOs and these experiences kind of put him on a spiritual path that eventually led to what he calls it straight up. He says it's straight up a spiritual awakening. And that's something, too, that shows up in this, that, that I wasn't prepared for when I started the research, how often that will come up. Well, uh, so that's a very typical straight 
story. Right. Stories get progressively stranger on some level as as this goes on. You know, as I as I you know as I collect more and more and more. Well, you, you've talked about how there is a strangeness and and a depth to these accounts that I think your words were it demonstrates that our ideas of what UFOs and ETs are all about are simply far too simplistic. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, so here's a so. Uh, I'll just go tell one little story here. This has uh, from a fellow named Ben. I love this story. It's there. It doesn't have. It's, there's no UFO in it, though. Ben has had experiences that play out like the kind of things an abductee would have. He's very aware of it. He's had missing time. He's had, and he is extremely cautious to put a label on himself. But he's very also very aware that it's somehow connected to this UFO thing. And and he goes right up to the line but doesn't quite cross it of calling himself an abductee. So he um, was with his kids, and I was in, in, uh, they were at a roller skating party, a birthday party, and they were all little, and they were in the van. He was driving everyone home, and, and uh, the car full of kids, and they're like, Dad, Dad, come on, tell a story. So he says, okay, I'll, and he thought, you know, I'm going to tell the UFO stories, or these, these kind of, most of them were about synchronicities and missing time. So he told a few stories, and he kind of played them up as campfire stories, and as he finished the final story, which was about missing time, driving at night, an owl flew right in front of this car. And it was punctuated perfectly. He said, I finished telling my last story, whoosh, an owl flies right in front of the car. And it was, he, he said, oh, well, he almost said it was cliche. So that's almost corny. Hmm. And later, he, this is, he has a second story. He was um, hiking with his kids all day on a trail, during the day, not all day, but during the day, and an owl would land on a branch and follow them. They'd walk along, and he'd walk along, and the the kids loved it. And and this owl would jump from one branch to another and fly ahead on the trail and then wait for them to pass and then fly to the next branch and wait for them to pass. The kids loved it, but he was kind of freaked out a little bit. He thought it was sort of scary. So he, he later that night, the same night, same day, he says, okay, I'll come up and read your story, pick a story. And so they, they, the kids pick um, a story called Say Boo. It's about a ghost who can't say boo. He's <laughs> unable to say boo. He's lost his voice. So, he, so you can kind of see where it's going. Very simple little kid's book with pictures. It's Halloween. The ghost needs to scare people, but he, go, he goes up to the cow and he can't say boo. So he goes, moo. And then there's one point where he goes up to an owl and can't say boo and says, who? And so he's reading the story aloud, and he reads the line, and the, and the story, the, ben, the ghost's name was Ben, just like my friend's name is Ben. He reads the line, and then Ben looked up into a tall pine tree and saw an owl. Right then the dog starts barking. And the dog's going crazy. He runs downstairs, he opens the door, and looks outside, and there's nothing. And he looks up, and right outside his door is a tall pine tree. So Ben looks up into the tall pine tree and sees an owl. He knew right away that it was the same line he had just read seconds earlier in the book. So in the process of, of making this book, right, so I had to go back and forth and back. Ben was great. So he was like, no, no, the story wasn't quite right. You've got to change this one line here. It was a little more like this. And so we would work and work and work. His story is all of like five or six paragraphs. But um, he gets to a point. He says, you know what? These are the same stories. Me in the van. That's me finding my voice. I found my voice. I told my kids of my real life experience. And the story of the owl, I mean, the, the ghost named Ben, finding his voice. He said, these are the same stories. 
And, and it really struck him, and it really had a power. I, I did not notice it. He noticed it. And, and it really um, it changed his, in some ways, it changed his outlook on these things, that, that back-and-forth process in, in, in examining these two stories side by side and how they somehow mirrored each other. You know, uh, my, um, my lovely bride, I, we call her the, I call her the mighty Aphrodite. She's um, a Greek. And um, when we go to Greece, we go to Athens, of course, and she's always finding um, owls, little uh, owls on T-shirts and things, because the owl is the, the symbol of Athens, because that was Athena's, um, what would you call that? Uh, it was her companion. companion. Yeah, her companion. And, and her, uh, the symbol of Athena is the owl. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, she's in a, um, in a restaurant here, uh, a business lunch, and she looks over. And she sees this beautiful owl on a shopping bag. And it immediately caught her attention because we, she has this affinity for owls, as I do, and she's in her Greek uh, descent and so forth. So she did something she wouldn't ordinarily do. She actually went over to this table of strangers, and she wanted to know what store in town has an owl as its symbol. And it turns out, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the rapper Drake, uh, but he is a, a resident of Toronto, and... Uh, he has a new a new store, and that's the symbol for Drake is the owl. Uh, now I suppose that's neither here nor there, but um, it is I suppose somewhat synchronicity, a synchronous, a synchronous rather that we are now talking about owls. And um, I just I just remembered that story. Uh, and well, the owls there's a, owls are very common, so you have to be very careful. I get a little kind of sometimes I have to kind of kind of. I mean, you can. I can walk down the main street or down a, any city block, and by the time you walk through a whole city block, you're gonna you're gonna see a few owls. Right. There's like owl lunch boxes. There's owl T-shirts. There's little owl bumper stickers. So you're gonna you're gonna they're they're out there. Right. But um, the but but that says something. Uh, it says, I guess, something about the the strength of the archetype. Uh, absolutely. That we would, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why don't we see ring-tailed lemurs everywhere or a gecko? Well, you do on some commercials, but the owl. So uh, maybe we should spend a, a few minutes, and we're coming up on a break, but we'll con- we'll start the conversation now, and we can we can talk about it after. And that is about myths about owls, uh, which cut across virtually all cultures and civilizations. I mean, we we all talk about uh, owls being wise, but there's also a link between owls and the spirit world. Correct. Absolutely, yeah, and I cover that in depth in my book, and that's a good, goodly number of the stories I get are connected, not with UFOs, but with death. Um, so uh, the owl has great big eyes and can see into the dark, right? So they can see into the darkness in a way that, that we, now we can, you know, using science and our knowledge of how, a, you know, night vision might work in an animal like that, you know, we can understand how it happens that would have been a complete magical thing for for our ancient ancestors. Yes. Uh, that an owl could not only see into the dark, but fly in the darkness, fly in complete darkness and complete silence. And that quickly turned into a metaphor for, this is all across cultures, that the owl can pass beyond our realm and into another realm. Flying into the darkness becomes a metaphor for crossing the boundaries, crossing the veil, whether they go to the land of the dead or the land of our ancestors or the land of the gods, you know, or the land of the UFO occupants. They, in the, in the, in the, in the mythology, in, in that sense, they have that ability 
um, th- then they have to return. And they return often with a message. And I cannot tell you how many, without any prompting, this is how the title of the book arrived, really, in a way, is that so many letters. They would just call, they would not refer to the owl. They would refer to, yeah, this owl showed up in my yard. It was really interesting, and it came up at a certain time. And then the remainder of the letter, they would call it the messenger. And then the messenger sat in a branch, and, and it just was happening naturally. And, mm. and that really struck me, that this, these were not people... These were not, you know, people. They they weren't graduate students of mythology at at, the, at a at a Ivy League college. These were just people who happened to see an owl in their yard. Right, right. Uh, and there are, there of course, the owl. You see them um, on totem poles. It is a totem. What? It's a totem of what? I mean, we we talked about it being a message, a messenger. But it's a. I think you described it as a totem of an uh, the initiate. What does that mean exactly? Well, I would almost say, so there's a couple ways to look at it. Now, I'm very cautious. This is, the, this is the core question of the book, or both books. The core question is, why owls, right? So, so I'm wrestling with that constantly. I don't have a great answer. I can dance around it and come up with the, some ideas. So if the owl, one, one thought is that the owl represents the, the initiation process, right? So the fellow earlier, I talked about Derek, right? He sees an owl on a cactus, he sees a UFO, later he has a spiritual awakening. Traces it all back to that UFO sighting, which was also a UFO and owl sighting. So that is that announcing initiation? Is that the role of the owl, right? I mean, is that what's, what's happening? It, it, it's a very clean way to look at it. You know, it, it lines up. You know, the puzzle pieces click together nicely. Another way to look at it is that the owl is the totem of the transformational process. And I feel that, so, seeing a UFO can change people's lives, right? Let me me just... uh, immediately confronted with with something that everyone says is not real, can't happen, and your idea of reality is forever altered. All right, Mike, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back. I want to talk to you also about uh, uh, Dolores Cannon, her experience. And um, I believe it was a... um, a gentleman who saw an owl sort of drop out of the sky, and uh, we'll discuss how that related to a UFO as well. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Mike Cleland here talking owls and synchronicities right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, Just a couple of programming notes. Next week, Matt Landman will be here to talk about uh, chemtrails. He has a documentary. And actually, if you go to the website, Strange Planet... Uh, .ca and then find the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. And we have that slide carousel up at the top. Uh, Albert has uh, posted the uh, in one of those slides, if you click on it, just wait for it to come around, and it's the Matt Landman Chemtrail documentary, and it's there. You can watch it. It's not just the trailer, right, Albert? It's the whole thing? The whole thing for free. It's the whole thing for free. Yeah. That's how badly Matt wants this out there. He's a true believer. <laughs> I'll say. Okay, so Matt Landman, uh, and then in the second hour, uh, Michael Doherty, 
Uh, we'll talk about uh, the devil in the Beltway. Obviously, the Beltway referring to uh, Washington, D.C. Now, uh, last week, we had David John Oates talking about reverse speech. And uh, we did a great, a terrific hour with him. Now, he's coming back. I kind of teased this. a little. Some people were kind of upset because um, uh, we didn't devote a lot of time to it. I wanted to save it for an, another whole show. The JFK reversals. We're going to do a, a full two hours, is it, Albert? Yeah, he, he says he believes he solved it. He, he can say who did it. Right, but we're doing two hours. Yeah, he's booked for two hours. And, he's, and he's when is around. that happening? Uh, <laughs> I would have to check the calendar to get the exact date. But it's... Um, uh, we'll be in April. It's in April. Okay, so coming up in April, we're going to do two hours on uh, reverse speech, all relating to the JFK assassination. So we'll hear reverse speech from uh, Oswald and probably Ruby, and you know all the players. Uh, so anyway, keep uh, keep an eye out for that. Just a reminder also about my new podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited. It drops three days a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You can go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And then, of course, the, uh, the brand new one just uh three weeks in now the rock and roll twilight zone and that drops every wednesday that's part of the uh, the jericho network uh with chris jericho in association with westwood one and again that's uh the rock and roll twilight zone and that drops every wednesday all right michael uh, michael cleland is here and uh, we are talking about owls and uh, ufos and i wanted to ask you about uh, dolores oh, here let me just uh, before, let me just there's a whole chapter in the book i did a reverse speech speech session um, with uh, uh, Wayne Nicholson, who's a reverse speech, I guess, therapist. I'm not sure what you yes, call Yes, that's him. right. He's the other um, one in, player in this field. Absolutely. Talk about synchronicities. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, that was, so when you said that, I was like, hey, so, so the book ends with, uh, you know, with one of the, a couple of the, um, a couple of the accounts that that uh, that he shared, like I did the chapter, and I couldn't. There was some that I was like, "Oh my God, this has to end the entire book." Where basically I said, you know, uh, uh, I slept in the desert. You know, there's a story in the, where I sleep in the desert, and I said, "This, you know, I slept in the desert, and it, and I had an owl fighting, or heard an owl and a UFO, and it's a very complicated story. It takes so like many pages at the end of the book." To, and I'm discussing that with Wayne Nicholson, and he plays it backwards, and I can't remember the exact line. I'd have to look it up in the book. But I say something to the effect of, it wasn't just one event, it was, it was all these events. And then he played that backwards, and it, some of them are a little faint, right? You have to kind of listen close, but this was very plain. It was my voice backwards saying, many owls. There you go. And that, that kind of, yeah, that was... That's, called a, my mind, that's yeah. called a congruency. In other words, yeah. you're, you're confirming in your backward speech what you said in your forward speech, which means that's, that's um, authentic. You're being authentic. And he, yes, so he said something which, which surprised me, which I didn't, I didn't know that much about it, but he said he'd done these for years, and he said I had no, whatever, I guess incongruent, I'd have to look up exactly, I did write it in the book, he said I had no, no negative or, or uh, contra- contrary uh, things show up in my reverse speech. They were all confirmational. Right, right, amazing. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Dolores Cannon, who, uh, of course, we know from her work in, in uh, regression therapy and so forth. Um, tell me about, about that. I mean, I know it involves a screen memory, but then there's something sort of more to that story. Oh, yeah, story. this is a wonderful story. Yeah, so, so Dolores Cannon is, uh, uh, was at the point in her career, I can't remember this, where this would have been, so I, uh, um, she was at the point in her career where she was doing straight therapy. And she started drifting into this more 
spiritual aspects. And she was getting people who were, who were, you know, she was doing hypnotherapy. I'm quitting smoking and losing weight and just reducing stress, normal stuff. And she had a, a, she was finding people like this UFO stuff was coming up and she had to decide whether to follow it. And she met with some of her colleagues and, and, uh, you know, had the discussion that night. Like, do I follow this? This is presenting itself. This UFO stuff. I don't know what to make of it. Do I follow it? Do I pull on these threads? That night, as she drives home, driving in the dark, she gets to her road in rural Arkansas, and she's driving along, and there's an owl on the road, and she pulls right up to it. Now, this is something I've heard often, and she describes it. She said she's in her truck, and the owl looked right over the top of the hood and stared at her. And there's no owl in the world that can stand. Even if you take a small car and a big owl. That's right. They can't look at you no. over the hood. Um the owl flew down the highway. She drove up to it again. It stared at her. The owl flew down the highway. She drove up to her. It stared at her. Went all the way to her door, right, or like to her driveway, until she turned off the highway. And, and um, years later, she's in. She's giving a talk when she was doing. You know, she was at this point. She's giving talks all over the world about her about her research. She's in London, and she goes to the British Museum, and, and there's a big booth with which has all kinds of of. Um, it's an owl display. So there's yeah. all kinds of owls of different sizes and taxidermy. And, uh, yeah, and and she looks and says, "These are all too small. I I don't know what I saw, but it wasn't an owl." Now the important part of this story to me is that this was the night she had to decide on whether she was going to follow the UFO trail, which she obviously did. So this is that thing, this like that the t- totem of initiation, right? You know, right. this is so. This is a perfect example, but this it's playing out not as a real owl. Because there's she was seeing something that's too big to be a real owl. What happened, what actually happened, I have I cannot say. I can speculate and dance around it, but I but I truly don't know. Now here's a, so here's another little odd thing. So I had that written that story written up. There's a woman, she made it did a wonderful movie about synchronicities. And she um the movie is called Time is Art, and her and her husband did this wonderful movie about synchronicity. Her name is Kelly, excuse me, um, Katie Walker. Can I get you to and, just hold on to the rest of the story? Apologies. Oh, sure. We're going to duck into another break, come back, and we'll get right to that story. Synchronicities. Michael Cleland, Owls and UFOs, back with more. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Mike Cleland stays with us. The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO Abductee, and stories from The Messengers, Owls, UFOs, and a Deeper Reality. So you were telling us about this uh, documentary uh, this woman made about synchronicities. Her, she's making a documentary. Now, this is the problem with trying to tell these stories, because you kind of got every thread you pull on, you know, you unravel a different part of the tapestry. She uh, was shooting owls in a uh, shooting video, she was shooting video of owl murals in the Mission District of San Francisco. 
So um, she sets the camera down. That's part of the doc. You know, she's the doc. And the camera, she didn't realize the camera was still going. As the camera's set down, they, they, they don't realize it until during the editing. They catch this big, seemingly metallic thing for just a few seconds as it passes across the frame and, and behind a tree. Very remarkable little, little clip of footage. Um, so here's a woman making a documentary on, on UFOs, excuse me, on, on synchronicity, photographing owls and captures a UFO. Mm. She contacts me. We, I talked with her about this. I loved this story. She contacted me and she said, oh, you know who you need? You need to include the story from, from, uh, from Dolores Cannon. And she sends me this letter, and it, it arrives at my email in the morning, and it goes chunk to chunk to chunk, and I just watch it when I turn my computer on. It like repeats nineteen times, <laughs> and I get back to her, and I'm like, Katie, what's up? Like you, you sent me the same story about Dolores Cannon nineteen times. She said, No, I didn't. I just sent it once. That arrived nineteen times. She was telling me to read Dolores Cannon. She actually sent me a copy of Dolores Cannon's book as a PDF, in in that where, where that story uh, occurs. Right. That was on October 18th, 2014, the day Dolores Cannon died. Uh, <laughs> I got, there was some mix-up where there was, you know, it was, it was powerful. For right, right. Um, I mean, that, that so many emails would mistakenly just line right. up, boom, 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 19 of them on my email inbox. That's right. All the well, same one. Here they are beating you over the head again. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. Uh Tell me about this fellow, uh, this account of uh, an owl basically f- just dropping out of the sky right in front of his car and landing on the pavement. This story actually came from Jacques Vallée. I, I was shameless when I was working on this book. I got a hold of every one I could possibly think of, and I said, do you have an owl story? And I, got, I sent a paper letter to Jacques Vallée. It doesn't have a, there's no email address or anything, so I sent him a paper letter. I said, do you have any, you know, so he wrote a letter back, and he said, yes, I do, and he explained very carefully this Two people were in a car. They were driving at night, and they they had to stop on the highway because an owl plopped straight down, landed on the highway in front of them, was kind of flopping around like it was disoriented. And then they, they're, as they're parked there, looking at this owl, they look up, and they have a close-up sighting of a hovering UFO, a hovering flying saucer. So it, it, this is the way Jacques Vallée cautiously speculated, he certainly didn't know, but he cautiously speculated that there must be something within the field of the UFO that, that, that disrupted this owl and, and caused it to flop around. I mean, that's one of the questions they ask in any kind of UFO sighting report is there any animal disturbances, you know, dogs whining or, or cats acting nervous. So here's an owl plopping out of the sky. Now, this is interesting because if you really truly think of the you know, all the animals in the animal kingdom, the owl has the single, probably the best hearing of all animals, especially, specifically all birds, has right. the best hearing. So is it capable of, like, being, is its hearing so sensitive that the, the seeming silence or whatever of the UFO was, was emanating some energy that, that disrupted its, its, its ability to fly? Interesting. I'm speculating myself. I really don't have the answer. But, um, but, you know, that's very telling. Especially the, uh, the barn owl that has the, that flat face. It's almost like a parabolic receiver. It's exactly what it is. And their ears are lined up very, very close to the edge of their... So, like, our ears are on the side of our head. Their ears are a little closer to the front of their face. So they can actually fly at night. And they can 
they can, um, how would you say it, where they can, you can target, you can, they can look and they can target the sound. So they, where they look, they know exactly where they're looking, where the sound is coming from. So they, have, they can fly at night in the darkness, in flight, and hear a mouse on the ground. Mm-hmm. They, they are remarkable. I mean, never mind the UFO aspect, just being in the presence of an owl. Or, I, you know, there's, there's YouTube channels dedicated to, to owls. Just being in the presence of an owl is, is a pretty remarkable, uh, intense experience, never mind the UFOs. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's in owls, so both owls and UFOs are marked by their eerie silence. And everyone uh, recognizes that. You know, like these <laughs> people will see an owl in flight and they'll go, it was so quiet, it was shocking. And that's the same thing you hear in a UFO report. So, it's it's like, do you feel like you're getting close, but then, oh, that's not it. It's it, it's elusive, isn't it? This connection. <laughs> I've given up. I've given up. I'm, I'm at peace now with that emotion you're describing there. So it made me crazy for a few years, and now I just had to like sort of like throw my hands up and say, this will remain a mystery. I will not solve this mystery, but I can. I mean, I, there's something wonderful and seductive about a mystery, so that's fine. But I, but I feel like I can, I can try to paint a picture of or or create a mood with these stories because I think that's what they're meant to be. Almost is have that flavor and that mood. So we're not meant to find out the the deeper meaning here. Well, we're certainly meant to struggle with it. I feel I don't know if we'll ever find it out. Maybe someone, you know, who knows? There's, you, 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 it depends on which way the wind blows, right? You know, on a Monday I have one idea, on a Tuesday I have something else, and, and I'm completely at the whim of whatever the next story that, you know, that crosses my desk might be. Were you ever at a point where you, th- uh, and you can maybe share where you thought you had unraveled the mystery, but then you no. found out, no, that's not <laughs> it either, not even, no. No, no not, I mean, I, certainly the problem was much of my, my initial was the mystery was, well, there was certainly a point when I got to the, where, I, where I realized I had my own contact experiences, which I was denying like crazy. And that's, that's the last 40 pages of the, of the first book, The Messengers, um, you know, me coming to terms with, with those experiences that, that uh, my, my confirmation experience where it became confirmed to me. So I, I, I feel like I'm directly involved somehow. Don't ask me why, why and what it means. But, but I feel certain I've had involvement with this, with, with the, you know, what we'd call abduction. Well, what would, um, you know, if you were to go to um, a shaman, uh, and just, rem- you know, never mind the UFO aspect, just your encounters with owls, um, what, would a, what would a shaman say? Well, that's this is that that's what I try to address in this in the books. I, I they, the way I say it is, I have to take off my UFO investigator hat, push it aside, and put on my shaman hat, and ask the questions the shaman would ask. So, you know, what was going on in your life leading up to this experience? What has changed in your life after? Those are the simplest questions, and it's remarkable. You know what what I'll get. I mean, there's so many accounts of people seeing UFOs at a point of like existential crisis. Uh, and and that shows, and there's also, you know, it's very, very common in UFO reports, people saying, you know what, I would like to see a UFO, and then boom, they see a UFO. That's surprisingly common. And I also have many accounts, like, where people are, you know, like, hiking, and they'll be in the woods, and the sun will be setting, and they'll say, you know, they'll turn to the person next to them, wouldn't it be cool to hear an owl hoot? And within, before they finish the sentence, an owl hoots. 
so there's this confirmation like that too. Oh, now your original question, I get back to. Oh, um, what would the shaman uh, say if you were to ask a shaman about the? Oh, what I would ask a shaman? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I would. I mean, I would ask a shaman what it all means. And I mean, I mean, I don't know how. I've actually, I actually have asked some shamans, and and that's just one of the questions. This is the answer I got from uh, from um, um, David Weatherly, who's an author, and he's the author of the book The Black Eyed Children. He is also a shaman. He does not talk about this much. He does. He's public about it, but it's but he's got kind of a two personas, and one is the author of paranormal books, and the other is doing shamanic work. And I asked him. What is going on with all the owls? This was at the point when I was going, I was losing my mind seeing so many owls. I said, what is going on with all the owls? And he said, he said it to me privately. He said, it sounds like a shamanic initiation. Hmm. Had he had owl experiences? He had the best owl experience. He, so he, so he is doing UFO research and paranormal research, and he's got a, he's going to a house where there's, a, the mom at the house is saying that she's been having a lot of UFO sightings and it's playing out like UFO contact. So he pulls up to the house in his truck. He's parked out front, and he's got his uh, portable uh, handheld recorder in his hand. And he's putting fresh batteries in because he's going to go and interview this woman. And he's looking down at his, putting the batteries in, in the front seat of his truck. And then there's a gentle thud right in front of him. And he actually feels the car, like, dip down like there's a weight on the car and he looks up and there's an owl that has landed on the hood of his car and is staring at him in the eyes so so this is a shaman at the house of someone who's having ufo contact and they they have an owl land on their on their car and stared in the <laughs> eyes upon arrival announced initiation so now another one here's another story so i so David is a friend of mine, David Weatherly, and he's a shaman. And so I have, like, I wrote a lot about shaman in the very first, like, long essay that I wrote, which would have been back in 2013, I think. So I, I said, I don't, I'm not a shaman. What do I know about this? So I, I sent it to him and said, can you review this and just make sure I'm not talking out of my, <clears throat> excuse me, talking out of my hat? And he said, sure. So gets back to me a couple days later. says, you know, here, a funny thing happened as I was reading your essay. I'm at my desk. I'm reading your essay. And this, like, flip, flip, this thing flies past the window. And I look out the window, and, and on the tree branch right out my window is an owl. And I, and I said, how long have you lived at that house? He said, 22 years. How many owls have you seen? Oh, I've never seen an owl. <laughs> so you are reading my essay. A shaman is reading my essay about owls and shamanism. This is what I asked him to read. And you see an owl out your window. Mm. He said, yep. Now, uh, unravel that. This is, this is what I'm saying. Like, it is not as simple as little aliens in a metal spaceship coming here from another galaxy no. in order to somehow <laughs> study us. Something more elusive and more playful is at hand. Maybe we should do an experiment. Uh, everyone listening tonight, I want you to uh, say to yourself, I want to see an owl tonight. Let's see what happens. If you see an owl, if you hear an owl, why don't you shoot me an email? Mike, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a delight. MikeClellan.com, HiddenExperience.blogspot.com, TheMessengersBook.blogspot.com, ColdCaseWriter.com. All right. 
My thanks to Ian Robertson, Young Zachary, Albert Venzel, Ryan White. Ryan, not Randy. I actually called him Randy last week. Fatigue, my friend. That's all that was. All right, back with uh, Chemtrails next week and The Devil in the Beltway. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.